Skizotopia. As always, I'm your host, Maxwell Cody, and joining me today is Matt Farwell, author of The Hunt for Tom Clancy Substack. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm just looking out here at some, uh, there's sunshine bouncing off the uh, the fresh snow here in Arkansas. So, you know, you can enjoy this snow for about two days and then it gets annoying, but uh, it's beautiful oh, I'm, right now. I- I'm living through my first winter outside of California, so I'm, I'm learning the ways of the snow. I'm in Michigan right now. I'm in the Midwest. So. Oh, oh, my God. So you're in real like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, thanks. Um, it's it's th- funny because I've adapted to it so quickly. Now it's like, oh, if it's above freezing, I'm like, oh, it's a warm day. I can. I found that when I was uh, when I was in the army and stationed at Fort Drum, uh, it it really surprised me because I, you know, I grew up in. Well, I grew up all over, but um, never like that cold a climate. And it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was kind of strange how quickly like 40 degrees becomes t-shirt weather. Yeah. I, I was, I was shocked when I first got here and I saw people walking around with, um, <laughs> with insufficient in California, if it rains a little bit, people will like put their, their fall gear on. Uh, well, get, the, you're from Southern California or where? Yeah, yes, I am. Southern California. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, speaking of army forts, I know you are a veteran of the Afghan war. Um, I was hoping to get your take before we get into Tom Clancy. I was hoping to get your take on how you feel about things. I guess we're over a year now post uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, I, uh, you know, right after the fall of Afghanistan, uh, fall of Kabul to the Taliban, I wrote a couple of pieces for, yeah, it was, it was you don't get many people like reaching out to you being like, Hey, will you write something about Afghanistan? Cause everyone just wanted to forget about it. Um, right. But I had two pieces, one in, USA Today and one in a New York magazine and uh, feel the same way. You know, um, it uh, is heartbreaking. It's um, I still have friends who have family members trapped over there. Uh, you know, I tried to help, wasn't able to. Um, I'm uh, incredibly pissed off at uh, the way State Department DOD handled the thing. It also pisses me off that I have to say uh, a all the government agencies I saw doing stuff, CIA turned out to be the only people who really took care of their people. Um, you know, and a lot of the CIA folks got out uh, and good for them. That's great. Um, but, you know, like the militia folks that we employed over there for many years, they're all living in Texas now. So, uh, you know, that's nice. But um, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. And it's also disappointing to see how quickly uh, the American population uh just forgot 
about well 20 years of uh the government the military and the intelligence community and the media lying to the public about how that war was going and now we're supporting another war that's going great uh, the uh well well i guess it's it'll be just a seamless shift seamless shift from a you know, it starts with a ru- Russian invasion. We back the rebels, then the rebels turn on us, then we have to invade them. So I guess in, you know, 20, 30 years when we're fighting Azov Battalion in, in Ukraine or NATO is, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's how, how the cycle goes. But do you think, I, I remember Biden saying something along the lines of uh, it was always going to end this way. The, the 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 Afghan people basically were never going to accept whatever system we tried to set up there, and it was always going to go back to the Taliban. I mean, do you, do you think that that's true? Well, I mean, I think maybe if we hadn't installed um, heroin trafficking uh, war criminals and uh, pedophiles in like positions of prominence in the Afghan government because they were easier to control, maybe the Afghans would have had a a, a better or more realistic shot of a accepting whatever we were trying to impose there. But um, we backed the worst people uh, and promoted them to high positions. I mean, you look at, a say, gen- general, I use the term very loosely, but you look at Dostum, uh, you know, Uzbek warlord uh, who during 2001 loved putting um, prisoners in shipping containers and uh, letting them roast to death in the desert. Um, and you know, 140, 150 degree temperatures. Yeah, that's a perfect guy to be our vice president there, to be our puppet vice president there while he's running product from uh, Kandahar and Helmand up to uh, the border, putting it over uh, into Tajikistan, sending it on flights to, you guessed it, Ukraine and Moscow. Um, so, mm. you know, uh, I think uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, they would have uh, had a better time or maybe things would have been different had uh, we not installed a bunch of like pieces of shit. Um, you know, and it turned out, I mean, I gotta, I gotta give my hats off to Hamid Karzai, at least, you know, that, that guy was there till the end. He's tough. You know, he was there negotiating with Mullah Baradar in the presidential palace long after Ashraf Ghani, who, you know, typical academic flees at the, uh, <laughs> the first hint of personal danger. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm just uh, disappointed. So the U.S. just, it was just a narcocracy from the beginning. And what was the logic behind that? We thought if we just let the, let the drug trade, let the, let the spice flow, so to speak, that um, Afghanistan would kind of just be compliant. Well, you have to go back and look at uh, how our policy in, say, South, uh, Southeast Asia was where in order to get the Montagnard tribesmen and other folks like on our, on our side, we had to buy up their whole crop. Right. And mm-hmm. so the, the drug stuff becomes ancillary to getting the personnel that we need. Right. Like these are all, it's all just think gangs, organized crime, criminal syndicates. Right. And so okay. if you can, if you can go ahead and uh, what was, what was the dude's name in uh, um, the golden triangle dude, Kasa? Anyways, um, yeah, it's in order to get the fighters and the people that we needed, we uh, had to make deals with people who were powerful. And under the Taliban, the only really powerful, like alternative power centers in Afghanistan were uh, people who've been, you know, narcotics uh, 
suppliers for mm-hmm. a long time um, and had built up, you know, fiefdoms in that, in that sense. So the, the narcotics were a currency by which we were able to pay for our fighters. And also it's a way of doing, you know, like I said, the, the Afghan heroin didn't, or the Afghan opium that then became heroin didn't necessarily like, it wasn't all like, not like we were importing it here, but um, we were sending it to Russia and to Ukraine. And Mm -hmm. part of that, we were sending it to Ukraine for profit and to Russia for destabilization. You know, it's it's a lot um, lot harder for a heroin addicted population to fight, right? I mean, we've seen that in our own uh, nation, where the traditional places that send a lot of people into the military just fucking got racked by opioids over right. the last twenty years. You know, so why wouldn't we be doing something similar to one of our rival powers? And it, we got precedent in it. I mean, it's part of how the U.S. was founded and funded early on. You know, you had the first, I write about this in the Without Remorse entry on the hunt for Tom Clancy, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of like the Boston Brahmins and wealthy New York families made all their money in the early 1800s by sending charter boats out of uh, Baltimore to pick up opium from Smyrna, which is now Izmir in Turkey. Um, but then was Smyrna in the Ottoman Empire, and then using our boats to get uh, opium to China for you know the British's uh, whole opium war stuff there, right? And so it's it's been part of national policy for a long time. We just don't talk about it. But then you know in the United States we're having our own opiate epidemic, and yeah. it, it's interesting to me because you know I've said it's like. China's future is like America's past and America's future is like China's past. Uh, there's this been this weird turnaround where it's like now China is, is the industrialized nation um, that's trying to um, take its place on the world stage, I guess, trying to become the new the new world power and throwing everything they have at their own kind of version of manifest destiny um, and industrialization. And then us, you know, United States, we've become like this weird uh, opiate addicted semi-civil war kind of um uh sino balkans whatever you want to call it. It, it it is if you look at the u.s like the u.s or the trans-pacific relationship between u.s and china um it, it, it's weird how in some ways we've kind of traded places over the last hundred years or so yeah it's fascinating and i i uh well i'm not uh, a china expert in any way shape or form you know like i know afghanistan and i know insurgency and terrorism a little bit um you know but from i think your i think your read on that seems accurate to me so let me ask you this were you a tom clancy fan as a kid and that's part of why you joined the military or did you become kind of a clancy guy when you got out of afghanistan we got out of the military also what what is the tom clancy fandom called clancers i don't know i don't i don't know that there's uh i got i'm gonna have to clancer clance heads clance heads <laughs> i don't know i'm trying to think I, of a good I kinda, one i like clancyite you know, Clancy, like Trotskyite, okay. but um, yeah. <laughs> like Clancy. The um, well, I got to go back a little bit because uh, part of I was raised in a military family, um, right. and so yes, I've read Tom Clancy from like a pretty young age. I remember doing like a fifth grade book report on uh, Patriot Games when I first moved to Yorktown, Virginia, um, and but also so uh, 
So no, I don't know that I necessarily joined the military because of Clancy. I joined the military because it's what people in my family do, um, you know, and have always done since like before the revolution. Um, and, but I became a Clancy fan as a kid because, you know, not only was like my family in the military, but all my friends' families were in the military. And so it becomes a way that you can relate to and understand, say, Buzz, your friend's dad, who is also an F-15 pilot, right? Or your friend's dad, who is like real uptight and the navigator on an aircraft carrier. If you read Tom Clancy books, you kind of like understand a little, or my, or even my own dad, who was on submarines in Vietnam, and then was an Air Force, like public health guy after that. Um, it was kind of a, a way in as a, as a kid to understand the world that I was uh, living in, you know, in the world that, and to relate to the adults around me. So who was Tom Clancy? Like if, if, if someone out there, I mean, he's a big enough name that most people are probably recognize the name, but they probably don't know a whole lot about the man. So Tom Clancy was a uh, insurance salesman with myopia from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, who also became one of the best-selling American authors of all time, um, producing and inventing a genre called the techno-thriller, um, which from his first publication, first book publication of The Hunt for Red October in 1984, eventually sprawled out to now we're, we're, we're approaching 2024, um, so you know over, over 40 years, sprawled out to include like just this massive uh empire of non of fiction books non-fiction books movies video games i mean about the only thing missing were the action figures you know like the actual toys um but everything else was there i mean he's a guy who sold his name to a video game company um a few years before he died for 45 million dollars and honestly probably could have gotten more uh, like it, it's that valuable of a property. You know, we got the office guy um, playing Jack Ryan now on the Amazon <laughs> Prime series. I, uh, I had I had Tom Clancy Rainbow Six for Dreamcast. So and I think that's probably oh, when I, I first became game. familiar with him. Yeah. Um, and the Dreamcast. Holy shit, man. Blast from a past right there. <laughs> the, that's uh, my that's my favorite console of all time. That's like the thing I'm most uh I, I wish we lived in an alternate timeline where Dreamcast had succeeded. <laughs> it's but, true. No, I, I think about like the Sega Saturn too. I played that yeah. as like a little kid, you know, the, there are a lot of great consoles out there and Clancy had good video games for like the old, like computer stuff too, you know, um, in the, so it's been, it's a multi-domain property, but essentially he's a military and intelligence propagandist and a very, very effective one. I mean, he was a guy that would, uh, and, and it's weird too, because I, Think about how he kind of uh, like almost created, you know, he was a guy who said he couldn't get into the military. He went to Loyola College in the 60s and was in ROTC, said he couldn't get in because of his eyesight, you know, so he had to go into insurance. But kind of like a fanboy who fucking wrote himself a, a, a seat at the table. You know, he eventually had like his pal Colin Powell would come over and like mm -hmm. shoot guns in Tom Clancy's basement, like firing range. You know, okay. Was, okay. So, uh, what makes it? What would you say makes techno thriller different than sci-fi? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I would say the techno thriller genre, um, as Clancy created it, relied on 
existing technology, whereas sci-fi is more speculative technology. But you really can think of it them almost as like sci-fi fantasy novels without like the magic or the teleportation devices. Like sci-fi realism is kind yeah. of what the, the techno thriller is about. And I, I'm I'm guessing with Tom Clancy, he kind of has, I don't know if you'd call it noir or hard boiled, but I feel like maybe like Jack Ryan, he's that kind of character. A kind well, of slightly grizzled detective or something. No, I mean honestly, honestly, Jack Ryan is more it's it's also more of a throwback to like say Camelot stories. Jack Ryan's oh, a knight. Okay, okay. He's a knight. You know, like there's no, no, there's, there's very little hard boiled about Jack Ryan. There's something okay. hard boiled about say John Clark, who's uh, Jack Ryan's kind of alter ego. He's the field guy that gets things done. Okay. But um, no, it's uh, you know, like the, I put it in, let me see if I can find this one, but uh, he's, so it's, and Clancy's also, his real gift was he's really good at, explaining how things work like um you know he can he runs you through a three three or four page uh explanation of the physics package of a nuclear bomb in the sum of all fears and it was reading that was the first time i really understood like oh that's how this thing works like he had a real gift for taking the almost like purposefully obscure uh um language of the military and of the defense contracting and intelligence worlds and putting it in plain English where anyone could kind of understand it. Right. And that's, that's how guns work. That's how nukes work. That's how, you know, uh, things are organized. He, he was really, really good at that. Okay. Do you think someone who, you know, was going to be working in the intelligence field or working in the military or something like that, they would actually benefit in a very practical way from reading tom clancy yeah i i absolutely think so um okay. I'm, I'm gonna so there's a guy named andrew basevich who was a he was a colonel in the u.s army uh and then he had to retire after um the largest uh peacetime destruction of military hardware of all time occurred when a uh there's a this warehouse fire at uh, a warehouse in kuwait so he kind of mm-hmm. had to fall on his sword and he wound up um he was I, this guy was a fast riser. He, he would have been a four star general, but he had to retire. Mm-hmm. And so then he became a professor and kind of got a little bit like started to look at what he was doing. And so he wrote a piece after Clancy died um, for the baffler where he says, and I, I'm quoting here from one of my sub stacks that I would like to have seen Montana entry. But uh, Basevich, a Princeton PhD in American diplomatic history, took Clancy's work seriously and identified what, what Starbucks did for the preparation of caffeinated beverages, Basevich wrote. He launched a sprawling, massively profitable industrial enterprise that simultaneously serves and cultivates an insatiable customer base. And I think that I, I, I think that's a really eloquent explanation for it because not only is it kind of uh, justifying what's going on now, but it's also recruiting for the next generation. I can't tell you the amount of people I've met in the military or security services who got interested in it because like they watch patriot games and the cia seemed cool mm-hmm. yeah or well, they watch hunt for red october and they wanted to be on a submarine i um i re-watched some of all fears um which i know you've written about the actual book um maybe before getting into the movie are, are there any big differences bef- between the book and the movie like huge differences between the book okay. and the movie yeah i mean was there any that you, you would say are glaring that might be relevant well the, why they the movie it? the movie has the the 
nuclear conspiracy is set in motion by a kind of covert fascist international led by an Austrian industrialist. That's the movie. Now, the book had the nuclear device being set off by a splintered group of the uh, splinter wing of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Um, Uh, But okay. So like those are big differences. And and it would also make more sense because in the movie they still have it being a stray is Israeli nuke that um gets that was a, of these. Yeah. No, but that was the same in the book. They go uh in the book yeah. they discover the nuke by um going up to a Druze farmer's field in Lebanon where a uh an Israeli nuke that was attached to a fighter plane and kind of got lost and the Israelis never wanted to admit it. And I don't know whether or not this is true. I think it's probably Tom Clancy having license. But yeah. um they go up and dig up the thing. But yeah, with both of them, the nuke actually originates as a Israeli nuke, which an Israeli nuke is actually an American nuke because most of the nuclear material for that came from our sites. And that becomes mm-hmm. a critical plot point for both the book and the movie when they're kind of deciding whether or not they're going to initiate nuclear war at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and and one of the reasons they that Jack Ryan has to jump on and like be the hero and like talk down the president is because turns out like the call was coming from inside our house right like this yes. wasn't this wasn't russian nuclear material this was it, oh this was ours so what was tripping me out about watching it now is that that movie came out in 2002 it came out after 911 um right. which was a odd time because some of all fears is like an end po- is like it's a post cold war story right um and then this movie comes out right after 911 and the war on terror is starting uh so it's already a little bit anachronistic um and then Watching it now with, you know, this new Cold War that's going on and the Afghan war just ended. So now it feels like watching it in a it almost it's almost become relevant again because watching it in a post-war on terror, new Cold War context, it kind of takes on a new level of meaning, especially with this kind of like European neo-fascist conspiracy that was uh, written into it, which it's odd that they would change that in 2002 when we were going into the war on terror you'd think they would they would make they would just keep it like the original and have it be islamic terrorists but uh, in, pre-produ- in pre-production while the movie was actually uh, being filmed they faced the backlash from the 1990s movies where arabs were generally the villains you know uh, uh, you look at say Bru- say the bruce willis movie bruce willis denzel movie the siege right where they yes uh, yes i remember like, that one very well those sorts so that was that was the context in which yeah i mean if it had come out like two or three years later like that bomb would have been sent off set off by al-qaeda yeah okay it's so fun i mean maybe it's not funny but it's just like you when you watch when you watch a movie like some of all fears i especially today it's an example of how all of these different shifting geopolitical ideas um kind of start to pile on top of each other um and it's just funny how it gets how quickly something can become relevant um and then become irrelevant and then become relevant again just in the span of you know 20 years uh watching this movie you know it's written the story is originally written to talk about um you know, the end of the Cold War and what the post-Cold War world might be like. And then it sort of kind of gets grandfathered into being a War on Terror movie. And then now it's almost like watching it and it's like you're watching a um, something that just came out. Like you could you and, could come out with some of all fears right now and it would be super topical. Super relevant. Yeah. And, and it's a reminder, too, of how much of like Hollywood is, you know, L.A. is we, we think of L.A. as like a... a um, you know, Hollywood, if you're not, if you're not from Southern California, right, you're, you're from Southern California, but people that aren't from there, like, kind of think of LA and you're like, oh, Hollywood, did you don't really think of like, no, 
it's a massive aerospace and like defense thing and Hollywood right, right, right. is just the advertising arm of that well pe people forget people forget you know the hollywood that reagan came from the exactly. california that elect reagan governor i mean california used to be the conservative state and it used to you know and hollywood used to be very conservative and in a lot of ways it still is like at its core Agreed. it still is oh yeah um the now there's this kind of this new liberal window dressing where it's like um we we need we need the military industrial complex to defend wokeness abroad basically is what the new line is uh but th that's the kind of thing is that i grew up in a very conservative town i both my parents are liberal democrats i grew up can i ask there. what town you grew up in there i grew up in fallbrook i mean okay. anyone out there yeah I, that's it's a right next to a military base uh i remember watching all the tanks and supply trucks you know coming out right after 9 11 and the, the build up to the um iraq war so it's like yeah uh, you know, one of the few places in america you would see tanks in there <laughs> you would see military in the street getting ready uh to go to war um you know in a in an era where most people were completely disconnected from the conflict at all. And then also, I want to say, a lot of my friends went and fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, many of them came back seriously damaged and, I, I think, underserved. But yeah. um, this is the thing. It's like, Tom Clancy you, to me... You're, you're in my bro Duncan Hunter's old congressional district, huh? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I hung out with him for a little so. bit. The, uh, he's a nut. Um, he was so much fun to hang out with. He's crazy. Um, I... I believe that. <laughs> I yeah. believe that. We, we had a we produced a lot of nutty uh, uh, congressmen from Southern California, actually. Yeah, you no, know, that's. I mean, you still do. It's uh, it's one of your prominent like exports to DC. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing about Southern California or San Diego County in general is that I, I don't know if you ever watched Unsolved Mysteries, but it, it was funny to me how many episodes of Unsolved Mysteries end in San Diego. Like yeah. it, it's always the, the the crazy murderers or the kidnappers or the bank robbers or the whatever. They always go to San Diego. And I know part of that. Well, is yeah, because... You had Whitey Bulger in La Jolla. Yeah. Well, you had the you had the um, Heaven's Gate cult also in um, like outside in Encinitas. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's all San Diego County. And, and, then... and you have you have a uh, Tom DeLonge just hanging yep. out. Yes, exactly. I, would have, I, I interviewed him, too, for uh him and Lou Elizondo and all those guys. And like, yeah, it, it was weird to go to their operation and then like walk a block down the street and be like hey the self-realization fellowship like that looks like a cult interesting uh, what the <laughs> yeah, hell is this place all about like a weird it, it's a weird vortex and i feel like I'll, I'll, my theory is that one is that just strategically where san diego is you got the um you got camp pendleton and you got um you know, a big part of the Pacific fleet is stationed in um, San Diego. And then it's right next to the border with Mexico. And then it's also like where you would go to flee. If you're going to flee to Asia or the Pacific, you're going to probably end up on the West Coast and whatever. And I think a lot of people in the 60s came to California for the California dream. And lots of people move out there to be movie stars and whatever. They move out yeah. there for the sunshine and the weed and what have you. And then if things kind of don't go their way, if they don't become movie stars or they don't become the next great psychedelic rock band out of the Bay Area or something, they just kind of trickle down into san diego that's well, well yeah and, and then they they distribute out from there a little bit too like my folks are from uh from southern idaho right and i don't okay. I, i've spent plenty of time in southern idaho but very rarely I, I haven't really ventured up into northern idaho but um you know the aryan nations compound that's up there by hayden lake mm -hmm. founded by a californian yeah tom Metzger, right yeah yeah tom Metzger lived in he he lived in fallbrook you've seen american history x right uh-huh the, the main character in that movie is based directly on Tom Metzger. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. So actually, if you watch Louis Throw and the Nazis, he actually goes to my hometown, Fallbrook, California, and goes and lives with Tom Metzger. And what was funny is, is that growing up, Tom Metzger had such a rep. You didn't see him very often, but he had such a reputation, such an ominous reputation. Um, you know, it's like Darth Vader lived in your town or something. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, even even the guy around here that uh, wound up settling up in Eureka Springs and building the largest freestanding statue of Jesus Christ in the North American hemisphere, which is <laughs> like, uh, you Thanks. see it, it's this, it's a statue at the front of the Ozarks, but he's a Californian. Yeah. You know? And I was like, like, huh, like California exports a lot of Nazis, huh? But if you watch, oh, absolutely. If you watch uh, Louis Throne and the Nazis and you go and you see him hang out with Tom Metzger, it, it was shocking to us because he shows what a pathetic old loser Tom Metzger is. I mean, it just yeah. completely demystified him. And I remember I was still pretty young when that came out. And I remember being like, oh, this guy isn't someone to be afraid of. This guy almost is someone to be pitied. He's such a dipshit, really. Well, um, and I, I think that's like that's the for me. That's the lesson I've drawn from like quite a few things is like, you know, you watch the movie The Producers, right? And you're like, oh, they completely deflate the power of like these Nazi yeah. idiots by making fun of them because that's like the that's the uh, assaulting their dignity is like basically the worst thing you can do because they're super fragile, you know, right. when you come down to it and pathetic. Right. But I grew up with this, to take it back to Tom Clancy, I grew up yeah. with this, um, I guess, Republican dad archetype. And I, you know, like I said, I come from a very liberal Democrat family, but um, the kind of Republican dad, he's not a like a hardcore right winger. You know, right. he's a little bit of a libertarian he loves, you know, any chance he gets to talk about military technology or something like that, he's going to want to talk to you about it. Um, he's got a love for, you know, General Patton and uh, uh, Grant and, you know, all the big names in um, American military history. Definitely has a real soft spot for Israel, even if he's just a little bit anti-Semitic, definitely has a soft right. spot for Israel. Um, you know, and I, I don't I don't hate this man. I don't hate this this archetype. I, I actually find those types of guys to be... Um, very grill pilled as we call it and very gregarious nice what, guy what's grill pilled grill pilled is a guy who's kind of like will say you know i, I don't want to worry about the culture wars i just want to grill in my front yard kind of like a centrist okay. Okay, you know okay. he, he yeah, might yeah. lean a little left or a little right probably leans a little bit more right but it, it's this it's this mentality of uh you know i, I don't want to talk politics i just want to hang out um it's yeah. it's like the guy that's never had a problem with his gay cousin and yeah. has, has friends like of different races and doesn't necessarily like hate women um, yeah yeah i, I got you the he's I, not, clancy, he's not a bleeding heart liberal either yeah but he's clancy yeah. was like weirdly progressive in some of his stuff where you know i mean he had a he had a woman as national security advisor in fiction uh, i mean in in some of all fears actually uh yeah. in fiction well before condy rice came in you know like there there were things with him where you're like huh like you're like, you're kind of ahead of your game, you know? And he, his second wife, uh, he married a black woman, you know? Oh, like, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, he married uh, Colin Powell's uh, second cousin, uh, Alexandra. That he would. That makes Llewellyn, perfect sense. Who was the, she, <laughs> she was the heiress to a PepsiCo fortune as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, they got along that way. But, I mean, they also seem to like, they seem to really like, like and appreciate each other. So, right. yeah, he, he's more nuanced than your, like, than the average caricature of like yes. that kind of guy would be. I I watched an interview with him with with Charlie Rose and it was in 1998 and I was kind of shocked by it because he's talking about 
the Lewinsky scandal and not just that he's disappointed in the damage it's doing to the presidency, but he talks about it as a national security risk. Um, and when Charlie Rose presses him on that, he basically says, well, you know, if someone wants to plan a terrorist attack against the United States and they think that there's the president is distracted, you know, the 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 guy who's the commander in chief is is um, has his attentions elsewhere. They might seize upon that. And it almost, you know, I don't know if you saw the looming tower, but basically the, the thesis yeah. of that show um, was or the book was that uh, or both was that you know, because the, the Lewinsky scandal was going on and because the different intelligence agencies weren't talking to each other and because the country was distracted, this is what sort of allowed um, bin Laden to to snowball or, or cleared a path for him to um, plan and carry out 9-11. And I thought that is kind of shocking that he, he seemed to be that lucid on that point. But then kind of getting into the more paranoid view, um, you know, there's a lot of people and I've heard a lot of conspiracy theories about Tom Clancy, uh, of him basically being... A spook, an op, um, not just a propagandist, like you said, but, you know, somebody who was actually kind of created by the the military industrial complex to kind of put out propaganda. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I think, you know, one of the one of the things that um, first really got me interested in this uh, was I went to I attended the uh, the University of Virginia and I worked at a place called when I was. I, I mean, I, I had to go there like three or four times because I or three times because I dropped out uh, a couple of times, dropped out to join the army and then had problems afterwards. Um, but when when I was when I got started on this project, uh, I went and looked at they have a thing called the Miller Center. And what the Miller Center does is um, they uh, whenever presidential administration rotates out, they invite everyone down, like all the, you know, the advisors and sub-advisors and et cetera, et cetera. And they have a couple of historians sit there with a tape recorder over a nice lunch, a place, you know, this mansion where William Faulkner used to live, uh, beautiful bucolic scenery and get everybody comfortable. Then they just talk for like a while, transcribe the interviews, and then they're sealed for 20 years. So the guy, the people are encouraged to kind of speak freely. Right. And so I, d- digging through the uh, the Miller Center archives, I found Robert Gates, who you know is one of the most powerful and influential bureaucratic, like national security figures of the last fifty years. Um, he was deputy director of Central Intelligence. He was deputy director of intelligence uh, before that, and then he'd go on to become two term uh, Secretary of Defense. So I say. Um, it sounds crazy for me to say that Tom Clancy was enlisted by CIA very early on as a part of a broader covert public relations campaign. And this is in the, I would like to have seen Montana entry, if you guys want to read it. Um, it sounds less crazy when Bob Gates says it. In fact, right after the hunt for Red October came out, I invited Tom Clancy to the agency. I was then DDI, Deputy Director Intelligence. So I had the job that in the movie version was played by James Earl Jones. Gates told scholars at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, I invited Clancy to the director's dining room for lunch. He invited him down to the office for verisimilitude. There he lectured Clancy on the inaccuracies present in the hunt for Red October. First, you'll notice that there's no wood paneling. Second, there's no fireplace. Third, there's no Turkish copy maker. And fourth, there's no admiral. But other than that, you just got it all right. Clancy wrote about the right kind of agency, the kind the public could believe in, the kind that didn't assassinate, engage with the flesh trait to gather sexually coercive blackmail on leaders foreign and domestic, or drug unwitting suspects with experimental concoctions. Um, After lunch, Gates made his pitch. You're probably going to write another book or two. The man who would soon direct the Central Intelligence Agency told the insurance salesman turned writer. The relationship was cemented. Years later, Gates ran into Clancy when they both spoke 
to a class of high school seniors. Clancy told Gates, you know, for the first several novels, I pretty much modeled Ryan's career after yours. So I think you're, they saw, you know, the intelligence agencies don't create. They're, they're not actually like super creative, except in like maybe a technical sense, right? Because spy satellites, SR-71, that sort of stuff, pretty good at that. But what they do is find something that is successful and then figure out a way to subvert it and use it to their advantage. And so with Tom Clancy, he comes out with this Hunt for Red October book that he writes basically by distilling all the information he had learned from a bunch of like retired nuclear submariners who were his insurance clients. You know, they'd come by and bullshit. He'd figure out what they were saying and kind of like incorporate it into his novel. So he, he open sourced this whole thing. And, um, you know, and then President Reagan, who was notoriously hard to brief, it was hard to keep his attention. It was hard to like, you know, get through to him. Um, he stays up like for like two nights to read this Tom Clancy book that the uh, U.S. ambassador to Argentina gives him. And the guy, like everyone around sees like, holy shit, like we can't get through to the boss, but like this insurance salesman in Maryland can? Well, shit, let's have him write some more books and like we'll put some of our briefing points in there. And so, yeah, it's that's stunning, right? Well, that's the thing is that, you know, if, you're, if we're taking the if we're taking the schizoid approach, it's that it's a little too perfect that this this insurance salesman writes this one novel. It's a sleeper hit. Um, and then Ronald Reagan, the president, reads it and publicly says this book rocks. And so right, overnight, right. Don Clancy becomes the biggest. Um, he, he rockets uh, up the uh, the chain there. Yeah. Yeah. But but at the same time, you know, given what we know about Reagan, that doesn't really surprise me. It's, it's not Pentagon had a believe. whole unit yeah. of animators at Fort Meade that would produce cartoons for him. Wow, I had not heard that before. Have you ever seen the movie The Day After? No. It was it's one of the biggest movies of all time that people just forgot about. Or probably the biggest TV movie of all time, but it's about a, a nuclear war between the US and the Soviet Union. It's as realistic as you could depict that. Um it I watched it as an adult because it came out in the 80s and I guess like schools got out early so that like millions of kids could watch this like everybody watched this and it just scared the shit out of them. Um I only bring it up because I know that Reagan said that he watched it and it actually changed his attitude about the Cold War. And I, I always wonder, is like, was he just bullshitting and trying to sound sentimental or was this really like this movie really got through to him and, and he decided to, you know, tone down the evil empire uh, rhetoric? Um, no, I mean, I, I think I think there's a similar there's a similar thing where Bill Clinton reads uh, Richard Preston's The Hot Zone and mm -hmm. is all of a sudden like, hey, what are we doing about like this shit? You know, like this yeah. scares me, um, you know, and it had like never been on his radar before. So I think there is a way that and it's one of the central like theses of kind of the Hunt for Tom Clancy project is that pop culture creates this feedback loop uh, right. among everyone. Right. Like and right. And anyone that consumes it kind of has a feedback loop from it and that uh, those people can also be policymakers. Right. I it's it, it's on one hand, yeah, like I said, it's almost too good to be true. And I do kind of think of because people also talk about, you know, uh, that the CIA also funded the first MFA program, um, mm -hmm. which I was getting ready to apply to an MFA program. And somebody told me, oh, you know, the, the CIA started MFAs. And I was like, get out of here. Why would they do that? That's silly. But I looked it up and what it was, I can't remember his name, but the guy who started the um, uh, 
the, the, first the Iowa Writers Workshop. Iowa, Iowa Writers Workshop. That's yeah. right, Iowa. Um, the first Iowa, uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop. He basically went to the CIA and was like, "Hey, we need to make liberalism cool because all these kids today think communism is cool. So we have to create this like dynamic, abstract art." Um, or, or this type of writing that really emphasizes the inner life and um, you know inner subjectivity against the kind of like socialist realism, this sort of thing. And they were like, yeah, definitely. They gave him some money. And what's funny about that to me is that if you take any like advanced writing courses today, it'll be that extreme emphasis on subjectivity um, and the inner life and this sort of thing. But it'll be that mixed in with a bunch of weird kind of college Marxism. Um, right. so the ultimate, <laughs> so I always say the ultimate end, the ultimate result of that was a kind of worst of both worlds where you kind of get muddled communist theory with like muddled individualism. Um, and it's why people don't want to do writing advanced writing courses anymore. It's why I quit. Uh, but, um, it's sort of like I, I kind of look at the you know intelligence agency and their influence on art, or specifically the CIA. It's almost like a record label. They see something up and yeah. coming, and they say, "Okay, we'll put some, we'll throw some money into this and see what we get out of it." But the funny thing is, I don't think normally they get a, a real return on their investment. But it seems like with Tom Clancy, they really they did. did. Yeah, they really yeah. did. This this really worked out for them. Well, and I mean, you you raise an interesting point there too, because like one of the things I like to uh, like remind people is CIA was founded by essentially by the Yale English department. Um, you know, uh, like, so. uh, James Jesus Angleton, uh, or Jesus Angleton who came out of, you know, the powerful like CIA counterintelligence chief, uh, who helped waterboard Ezra Pound back in the day. Um, he was a, he was a Yale English guy that was obsessed with the seven types of ambiguity. Um, and, Pearson, who was a professor in the Yale English department, he was a spy spotter for the OSS. Um, so like CIA was founded by a bunch of like frustrated novelists and poets from the Yale English department, at least the operations side of it. And then the mm -hmm. analytic side was founded by uh, Sherman Kent, who was a Yale history professor. And so the, the tradition of American intelligence like has its roots in collegiate like collegiate english and history departments elite collegiate english and history departments and the british model which also is full of like poets novelists freaks and weirdos so there's always been this kind of uh disaffected intellectual how to put it not quite i guess kind of countercultural <laughs> streak or, or uh romantic animus inside of uh inside of the intelligence agency because all i know about the the founding of the cia uh, i thought it was just like okay we had the oss now we need something more serious to um fight with the soviets and that i they, they was just a direct carryover no i mean there were there was a, about a two-year period um after you know from 45 to 47 because cia mm -hmm. was founded in 47 where um the OSS had been disbanded because, uh, you know, OSS was founded basically by Roosevelt um, and Roosevelt's uh, handpicked guy, Donovan, who was a New York lawyer and, you know, World War One hero and friends with everybody. But the institutions, both State Department and the military, never really trusted it. In fact, the army created after OSS was created, they created their own like highly secret spy organization called The Pond, which was led by a guy named uh, John Frenchy Grombach, who, weirdly enough, was an army intelligence officer doing groundbreaking work 
with uh, radio uh, and television applicability to espionage. He was working at CBS in the 20s as an army, 20s and 30s as an army reservist. So they found the pond, um, which is kind of a right, you know, to be like their spy organization. But that, that kind of carries on. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't a seamless thing at all. And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, necessarily a natural evolution. And Truman, who signed the CIA into existence, he regretted it the rest of his life. Um, you know, and we kind of rail against them uh, from time to time. And, and so, no, it's a weird kind of uh, almost elitist reactionary agency that was able to subsume a bunch of people that otherwise might have, you know, gone into another line of work. It always... Metal to the state. Just a, a little bit of a tangent, but it always kind of surprised me that the former head of the CIA, or the only former head of the CIA who ever went on to become president, um, George Bush Sr., uh, that he lost his reelection. I always kind of thought the people who say, how did the how did the king of the spooks lose reelection to Bill Clinton? Um, did, how did, he, he, did he lose? Who? George George Bush Sr.? Yeah, I mean, I, I know he, he wasn't the president afterwards, but... Um, I'm just, I'm going to go off Clancy here, right? And in Clancy's okay. Iran-Contra book, um, Clear and Present Danger, the end of that basically has the current president who has been embroiled in this South American covert action scandal uh, being kind of told to, you know, making a deal with the, uh, the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence leader and minority leader to sort of throw the election. So if you want to get real weird with it, then let's get real weird with it for a second. Yes, you've come to the right place. Okay. So let's consider, I, I, I live in Arkansas right now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I live in Fayetteville. Bill Clinton lived here. Um, in Arkansas in the 80s, uh, Bill, like, there were sure a lot of covert things being run through here with full knowledge of the governor. Um, and... Let's see, the only way Bush loses that election is because a spoiler comes in who happens to be this Texas billionaire who markets himself as an outsider, but he makes all his money selling computerized, like the computer infrastructure for social welfare systems to both the US electronic data uh, systems, Ross Perot, um, and who has like financed his own intelligence operations in the past and continues to finance intelligence operations has been on the president's foreign intelligence advisory board. So what if Bush being King spook that he is King spy that he is <laughs> decides, you know what, this is too prompt. I'm in too prominent of a role here. I can't actually direct the action while I have to be the actor pretending I'm in charge. And so I like to think that, Maybe they brought on a ringer and maybe uh, maybe President Clinton was a handpicked successor. And that would throw like the whole, uh, you know, next 15, 20 years into like that. That gets real weird with it. Right. And then, I, right. He, he's a one term president. And then you can have two terms with Clinton and then you have his son come and take over for eight years. Yeah, um, and if you want to get real weird with it, you want to get real yes, weird. Yes, with it. we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> All right, I have a, uh, and I'm not saying I'm not saying this is not my theory, and I'm not sure that I believe this theory. Okay, right? sure, sure. But I love this theory, and you have stuff like this, right? Where you're like, eh, I'm not really sure they're like seven foot tall shapes. We, we call it reptiles. We call but it like, brain origami here. Okay, so some brain origami here. Yes. Now imagine 
imagine you're a young superstar at Yale and you've just graduated and you've just finished, you know, your wartime service and you're on your way out to Midland, Texas to like, you know, get out there to the frontier and claim your fortune. You're a Connecticut Yankee, but you're going to go be a cowboy. Right. And you stop. A, t- a tough sell, in my opinion. Tough sell, right? But I mean, but that's what Bush did. Yeah. Um, I was always so, surprised that that worked, to be honest. I, I, it, it always amazing. bothered me. How, well, how are I, you getting away with this fucking Texas cowboy thing when we all know you're old school blue blood? It's like it you amazing. just don't care. So, <laughs> but so this is this is one of my friends' theories, and I love it. It's um, that while while George H. W. Bush was on leave or like was uh, was transiting between uh, Connecticut and Texas, it's documented that he stops off in Hot Springs, Arkansas, for a couple of days. Right? You with me here? Okay. All right. So maybe he stops off in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, winds up getting someone pregnant. Then maybe he carries on with that, and that kid grows up thinking his his actual dad is a drunken used car salesman that dies in a uh, in a car accident. When maybe maybe he's so my friend thinks that George H. W. Bush. And Bill Clinton or George W. Bush and Bill Clinton are half brothers. Oh, I <laughs> and I love it so much. I, I don't bet. know. I don't know that I'm like that. I actually believe it, but that like it's that. Two, so it's two of it. It's his two. So he's he's Palpatine. He's Palpatine, mm-hmm. and he's seeding the galaxy with his with his weird clone babies um, and uh, ruling ruling from behind the scenes. I mean, did, did you ever read about how? George Bush. It's kind of fun, right? I and it fit it, it tracks with a lot of other conspiracies, <laughs> I guess. But did you ever did you ever hear about how um Bush Sr. made sure to buy a ticket to be at the pyramids for the um turning of the millennium? Yeah, I've I've uh I've read about this and posted about this a lot because he was gonna be there for the millenniums for a fundraiser for the Millennium Society to raise money for the United World College movement, which was a network of high schools throughout, of uh, exclusive like boarding schools where people went on full scholarship throughout the world that was founded by uh, Lord Mountbatten and then carried on by now King Charles. The one in uh, the Americas was founded by King Charles and Armand Hammer. Uh, yeah, George H.W. Bush was gonna be raising money for this. The Millennium Society was gonna be raising money for this. That's where I went to high school, dude. The millennium. I, I went to the United World College of the American West in Montezuma, New Mexico, which is a two-year, two hundred-person high school with seventy-five percent international students, founded by uh, now King Charles and um, Armand Hammer, the industrialist and spy and criminal and uh, art collector, <laughs> and uh, and then let's see, like Queen Nor came when I was there. You've never heard of this school, right? No, I don't think so. Yeah, no one ever has. But um, also, is it a spook factory or what? I mean, that's, the, that's what the, you're making it sound the, like the most. Com- and again, I went. You know, I got uh, my English teacher in high school didn't li- in Virginia didn't like me very much, and she'd gone out to a seminar out there and was like, "Hey, this place would be perfect for you." Oh. That way, <laughs> you got get, exiled. Yeah, that's why you'd get. I'll write you a really good recommendation, Miss Sutton. You don't like me very much. She's like, "Exactly. I want to get rid of you." Um, and so that that's how I wind up there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the most common educational credential at the World Bank mm-hmm. is not 
is not a degree from Harvard Business. It's not a mm-hmm. degree from the London School of Economics. It's not that you went to uh, what's that like French school in seed. Um, it's a small 200 person high school in northern New Mexico that no one has ever heard of. That's odd. Mm-hmm. And this was who and this was who George Bush was going to be raising money for. At yeah, he was raising money for the. Yes. <laughs> Yes. It weirds me out, man. It's why like it's why on my, uh, you know, if you if you follow my it's, it's just cartoonishly I, Illuminati. You know what I mean? It's, it's cartoonishly well, if you, Illuminati. If you yeah. follow my hunt for Tom Clancy Twitter account, like I'm constantly posting about uh, like the Bass Pro Pyramid because I think it's hilarious and um, that stuff in general. But like I came across that and was like, wait, what? Like, this is weird. Mm. Um, you know, and when you're when you're young, you go to a school where like. Uh, there's a bunch of like cool kids from overseas every everywhere and you can like smoke cigarettes and hang out and like sleep in your right. girlfriend's like room you don't think about any of this right um but then you, you get like you get 20 years down the road and you're like huh which, which level of the that pyramid was that <laughs> yeah like what, what was that all about um and so yeah there's i mean the world is weird and it's it's a lot a lot weirder than people want to like think it is at least in my experience and what I've seen, you know, and I've had a weird, like, I never understood that I've had a extraordinarily strange life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just my life. I don't know. Like, but um, when I, when I kind of look at it, I'm like, Oh, like, yeah, this is a, this is all odd, huh? I, so what do you think about, cause what I've been, people have been buzzing in my ear about lately is, um, whether or not uh, DeSantis uh, is, is sort of um, a plant, uh, 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 the the spook's choice, if you will, um, and you know that the what's going on with the 2024 election is that it looks like right now it looks like if we're doing a little brain origami here, it looks like Trump is going to get in trouble for the classified documents. Then Biden is also going to get in trouble for classified documents. And then possibly neither of them will be able to run. And then it's going to be Newsom versus versus DeSantis. That's kind of what it looks like to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to necessarily read all those uh, tea leaves. I know when I was out at the, uh, the Trump Doral and let's see last, last year, 2021 mm-hmm. um, for a story I did on Mike Flynn for the new Republic. Uh, I wound up talking with uh, Roger Stone for like 20 minutes. Um, he's an interesting guy. Uh, and I asked him, you know, like basically like, and he, uh, Trump and DeSantis can't run together because they're both Florida residents. Um, but he said DeSantis wasn't ready. It was what Roger said. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that like kind of, but yeah, I don't, uh, DeSantis was a, I mean, first of all, he's a JAG. He's a judge advocate general. He's a military lawyer. So like, right. you know, one, I don't, I don't really trust them. Second, I don't like trust the JAG that was embedded with the Joint Special Operations uh, Command in Iraq in 2007 when like those dudes were doing some bad shit, right? Like I was conventional army. I was a regular grunt infantryman. I ain't ever done anything special. I've never been a spy, never been a commando. I've just been around them, you know, right. as like, as my normal job. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to go with like, I I think the guy that was writing legal opinions for JSOC to be able to like conduct a massive campaign of murder throughout, um, Iraq may not be our best, uh, you know, may not have our best interests in mind. I, 
to bring it back to Clancy, though, I was kind of shocked in his interview with Charlie Rose. He starts talking about, and this is 1998, he starts talking about how the most moral way to fight a war in the future and that what he personally advocated for was that the U.S. strategy should from now on should be from day one. How do we take out uh, the leader? How do we just kill the leader immediately? Well, and brother, he presented that to um, I talk about this in another hunt for Tom Clancy. Uh, This is I I just want to encourage all your podcast listeners that. I do. I charge a little bit of a fee. Um, yeah. If you pay the $7 monthly thing and like download all the things, I don't give a shit. Go ahead and do it. Um, if you want to throw me some money, throw me some money. But my back catalog is good and you'll learn a lot. Okay. Um, and wait, so I just lost my thread there. Jesus, what were we talking well, about? Well, Clancy says the logical extension of oh, stealth war, of stealth fighters, well, he, stealth bombers. He, he presented this thesis to in a lecture to majors and colonels at Maxwell Air Force Base that we're going through kind of the Air Force's finishing school, right? Of right. like, and it, he calls it in the books, the Jack Ryan doctrine, right? Like kill the leaders. Um, right. And then like, we kind of start doing it, you know, like it's, yeah, it's once again, like it, it, these guys. It, and so these guys, when they were like majors and colonels heard Tom Clancy say this, were like, oh, that shit, that sounds like a good idea. And then they get up into positions of power, like real power, you know, like four star power and then we start doing it that's interesting to me right and that seems to be the thing with clancy where what is it is it clancy is saying these things and it's influencing the military or is it the military being like hey clancy it's time for you to put this this talking point this is what we'd like to do like so go ahead and like or or maybe to be a little more generous maybe it's like because they kind of started to you know invite him to military bases and i know like dan quayle invited him to come talk about Dan Quayle wanted something where he would get people excited about the space travel again or something. Dan Quayle like, wanted him on the National Space Council. Right, and, right, right. Uh, yeah. But maybe it's yeah. just because he he starts to be into these circles, he starts to kind of get a view into what they want or where they're going or what what makes the most sense. Yeah, at a certain point, if you bring someone onto the team, you don't have to like tell him what the team wants him to do. You just right, have to right. intuit what you need to do for the team. And Tom Clancy was definitely on the team. You know, and, and he's still, you mentioned how your intro to him was playing Rainbow Six, right? Yes. And I know yeah. the U.S. military started, they put out, I think it was called America's Armies. They put out their own first person shooter game that they would just give away to people for free. Yeah. My friend, uh, Jason Amarine helped develop that up at West Point. Um, <laughs> that, that stuff, that stuff is, I think, maybe the nastiest of them all. That well, is a would... really underhanded way to get kids to join the military. Well, but I mean, dude, they've been doing it like, you think that movie War Games with Matthew Broderick? Like, they've been doing so, this shit a long time. But um, War Games, isn't War Games all about, hold on, that's the one where the, the AI is going to initiate a nuclear war and he talks him out of it? I'm, I'm remembering this correctly, yeah, right? right, right. Yeah, right, right. I always, I loved that movie as a kid. It's a great movie. Uh, I, I thought the whole point of that movie is to tell you that the, you know, well, it's the same thing that the um, the day after is telling you, that no nobody wins a nuclear war. Right. And you have you also I think people tend to think that there are monoliths within, like, say, the military, the intelligence services or, you know, the, mm-hmm. the bureaucracy. They're not. They're they're factions. Right. They're <laughs> factions within any of these. So that's a rival faction. You're telling me war, the movie War Games is also a spook movie. Uh, yes. I'm telling you, no, the movie Dreamscape was also <laughs> like, have you watched Dreamscape ever? Hold on. What's Dreamscape? OK. You've seen Inception, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Dreamscape is where what Inception stole all its ideas from. Okay. What year? Uh 83, I want to say. Um 83. Dreamscape. 
Dreamscape. Oh, it's and, like Dreamcast, huh? Mm-hmm, it is like Dreamcast. And Dreamscape's whole thing is a uh, 1984. A man who can enter and manipulate people's dreams is recruited by a government agency to help cure the president of the United States of his nightmares, but then must fight another guy who's been recruited to kill the president in his dreams. That's got Max von Sydow? Yeah, dude, it's a great movie. And it, it, uh-huh. Dennis Quaid, too, like young Dennis Quaid. And Chris Plummer. Chris Plummer is like the guy who is kind of the shadowy president. He's the director of covert ops that like no one knows exists. Um, and what was going on at this same time? SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, was operationalizing a lot of its research into like psychic phenomenon, dream manipulation stuff, like all that. So I have a theory that a lot of these movies kind of come out based on like real shit that's going on so that if uh, you, you know, if somebody like talks about it, oh, you're crazy. You just saw that movie. Well, you know, in the the cover, you know, cover mechanism in the that's a much more sane take on predictive programming, because I don't know if you've heard when people talk about predictive programming, it's like that things are put into movies uh, as a way to get you to consent to them. Um, oh yeah, or, or that it's the way it's a way you know the, the elite or the Illuminati or whatever are, are, are putting these symbols into things as a way of sort of hypnotizing you even. And I always thought that was a little bit silly, but the idea no, but it's, of it's kind an of, inoculation, but the idea of doing it as a form of soft disclosure mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And the the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, a lot of the Tom Clancy, I mean, Tom Clancy is kind of like the MCU for the CIA, I guess. Right. Do you think that would be fair? Um, but what's funny is a lot of the I think also the MCA, MCU is the MCU. <laughs> yes, but... <laughs> there's also that. There's also. I mean, that. there's a lot of, but there's a lot of soft disclosure. I have a, uh, I have a buddy who is, he's, he's ex CIA. He's black. He's from North Carolina, and he said his grandpa always told him, like, "Hey, don't believe what you read in those nonfiction books. Believe what you read in the comic books and see on the movies, because like they're mm-hmm. trying to tell you something." And so, what's, I mean, what is the Marvel Comics universe? But like the uh extension of like human performance efforts and human experimentation and like shit that we know not only like the nazis were doing but we were doing as well and the japanese the imperial japanese were doing the soviets you know giving people yeah everybody weird shit like that yeah yeah um but okay but it all gets weird huh well this is the this is a whole other dispute okay that I, i hear a lot where it's like i would say the overall message of the mcu is that america needs to build or that the world needs to come together under America's guidance, we'll put it that way, um, to protect ourselves against extraterrestrial threats. Yeah, I, I can see that. And then and then the debate now is, okay, is... You Are know, we getting on like Werner Herzog, or like Werner von Braun Bluebeam stuff here now? Right. Or is there an is that because there actually is an alien threat that they don't want to talk about, or are they making it up as just sort of the next generation of the military-industrial complex? Or are they interdimensional beings? Yeah, but I mean, you could say Thanos is an interdimensional being, or you know, the 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 ETs don't have to actually be aliens. They can just—it's some kind of outer space threat. And then you know, there's a lot of occult stuff in the MCU as well. It's all kind of mixed in there. And if I'm trying to read this as some kind of um, uh, soft disclosure thing, uh, it would seem to be that okay, the next the next big threat that the battle of the 21st century will be a um, uh, some kind of cosmic struggle not some kind of uh, earthly ideological struggle 
man, Cosmic Struggle would be a great band name. That there's got to be at least one. Don't you think? Um, there's got to be at least one. I mean, there's a band out there called Schizotopia in Germany. I wasn't the first person, unfortunately. Is there really? <laughs> its name, yeah. If you search Schizotopia, you'll find mostly my podcast. We scroll down a little bit, you start to see German, and there's a little German band called Schizotopia. Um, Germans but, are so weird. The, uh, <laughs> I, I lived in Germany for a while, and I'm I'm part Swiss German, so I can say that. But great. I mean, I, I also I, I don't think it's like that much of a like controversial statement to say Germans are weird. I don't think anybody, yeah. I think no, no one really feels that. bad for the Germans and I don't think they ever will. But I, I hitchhiked through Germany and I, I found them to be incredibly weird as well. So <laughs> <laughs> but, I've um, actually never had a country be ruder to me. I mean, even the French were not as rude to me as the is uh, some of the people in Berlin. So yeah. No, I mean and I I liked uh, I lived in like Bitburg and so I I really like Germany and you know I kind of I like them. It's a weirdness I understand in a lot of ways, but um, but yeah, I think like you you um, you use the term soft disclosure, but I like to think of it more as a cover mechanism, right? Like they're not trying to tell you this stuff because like they secretly want to like you know they want you to know what's going on. They're trying to like plant something there that can be pointed to to distract what's behind it that's right. actually real right if you're all riled up about well then the thing is is that this is what i've always said is i call it meta conspiracy this is what i've always said what i think QAnon is QAnon was you know what i wanted to get into earlier was that a lot of the kind of tom clancy archetypal republican dad um people uh, that i was talking about earlier like a lot those were the prime target for um q on like a lot of the a lot of the kind of like uh tom clancy republican dad archetypal dudes they're the ones who got fully went fully off the deep end with the q on shit and the thing about q on where it's like some of it where it's talking about human trafficking you know elite blackmailing um all this type of stuff like that that stuff we know is largely true or largely real or at least based on something real but then all the crazy lizard people outer space stuff that seems to be the part that's meant to poison the well and make it um, completely ridiculous and it's funny to me like even like something like where we go when we go all kind of sounds a little bit tom clancy to me even though i know they it really does no i i i mean i uh <laughs> if if i if i were writing this novel right i would have it be 2024 2025 and all of a sudden a guy named Tom Clancy reemerges and he's like, listen, I had to fake my own death in 2013. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been up to, you know? <laughs> Cause yeah, this, no, this novel would... is definitely called the storm too. Like that. Oh also. my God. Right? Sounds very no. Tom Clancy. Yeah. No. And like, I remember, I mean, I followed all that stuff from the beginning because I was, I was fascinated by it. Right. Cause I'm, I've been, I've been proximate enough to enough things that uh, get like conspiracy people excited and seen where, right. Uh, there's like either leaps in logic or suppositions that like aren't necessarily true or you know there there's small things that break down where you're like yeah that's entertaining but like come on man like go like go like work in this world for a little while and like see how these people actually are like you mm-hmm. probably wouldn't believe that um but like dude that was like i want to know who wrote it because it was genius narratively i mean th- to be able to take so many threads of like conspiratorial thinking and weave them all together into like this computer-based like Socratic method education thing. And the other thing it did was, yeah, it created an army, like created a digital army that then managed to like transform itself 
also into the real world, you know, in a way that maybe we haven't quite seen. Um, and I, I found that fascinating. It was like, you know, I, it's like, say, if Steve Bannon <laughs> realized, hey, we got a lot of like angry dudes on the internet that like aren't getting laid. How can we use them? And, and also just kind of like how it kind of just weaponizes the whole just general thrust of social media, which is that let's all go on these forums and just kind of um, group think ourselves into whatever, you know, and that's the thing. I always kind of thought this must be people within the Trump administration that realize that they could actually build a real cult of personality anonymously online through something like QAnon. And by kind of having maybe little bits and pieces that were true mixed in with all of these other uh, right wing and left wing conspiracy theories and then like weird new age stuff as well. Um, you mix it all together and it sort of becomes uh, how to put it. It becomes uh, it gives you a lot of deniability. I'll put it that way. Well, and and. You know, I, again, just want to stress to your listeners here that there's there's a hunt for Tom Clancy entry for all of these things, actually, mm -hmm. go back through. And so on the Red Storm Rising essay, um, I've got a whole thing on a, pen, on a uh, Pentagon guy named Michael Furlong that worked in various like organizations that don't exist in the basement of the Pentagon. Um, and I'm just going to read you something real quick. Please. Uh, so... Programs get shut down. People rarely do. And Furlong stayed in the intelligence psychological operations game, partly by using video games for his intelligence and psychological operations. Mike Furlong would use the codename Capstone, by coincidence, the same name as the company that made the ill-received Cardinal of the Kremlin game, for his black projects in the War on Terror. Early on in the War on Terror, Furlong was in Las Vegas for a convention, a broadcasting tech expo he attended each April. Seemed like everyone was there, Furlong recalled. He ran into someone he knew from the 66th Military Intelligence Brigade. They talked, went to dinner that night, and then Furlong used his friend as a front to plug into, quote, all the Arab assets, go to Dubai, Media City, and all those other things. They were big into video games. The 9-11 hijackers uh, trained for their doomed flights at aviation school in California, Arizona, and Florida, but they perfected their techniques on a video game, the Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, after 9-11, one of those strange war on terror Black Mirror scenarios, the Navy used a modified version of Microsoft Flight Simulator to train its own pilots. Furlong began to see the value of video games for the murky world of intelligence. He also saw the value in subcontracting technical work out to Eastern Europe. He paid 20000 a year for Czech subcontractors when it would cost him seventy to eighty if he had contracted it to an American programmer. Plus, the Czechs were fast at modifying the code on existing video games to fit the requirements. I would get these damn video games. You got a picture of Furlong. He's like a, a General McKernan described him as a, that fat, sweaty guy. So he's just like, he's he's the like, he reminded me of that, the stapler character in Office Space, right? Like in, in Affect. It was just yeah. chain smoking Marlboro <laughs> Lights, right? And um, so he said, uh, these guys, I would get these damn video games, Furlong recalled, amazed. These guys had teams of people who'd come back in five weeks to deliver the beta. How about this thing? Six, seven years, we'll bring it from scratch. Furlong was impressed and told them so while issuing another set of directives. I want you to get inside, use video games, and look at what we can do to develop avatars and personas. Remember, this is 2002. It was cutting edge. His boss didn't have the full view of what he was doing, but that didn't mean no one was watching. I'm having problems. Like they've sold out all these video games in the bazaar. I'm sorry, this is actually like 2005, 2006. Um, yeah. Pretty soon they had representatives from the NSA coming down unannounced saying, Mike, everyone's kind of pointing to you. What are you doing with video games? Well, he was capturing and killing people with video games. 
Once the games, which had no U.S. fingerprints, were installed and played, Furlong and its analysts could track the player. If someone was on the kill capture list, they would send a reward through the game, inviting the player to an all-expense-paid sex weekend in Dubai. Horny Mujahideen gamers would show up in Dubai, get to the hotel, and rather than a hooker, they would find a counterintelligence officer waiting for them. The counter-spy mission is simple. Flip, imprison, rendition, or kill anyone who fell for the catfishing scheme. The NSA were were an intimidating presence, Furlong recalled. They had these kids that live in the industrial park where they uh, own every townhouse in it, and these guys with ankle bracelets rather than go to jail. These hackers, world-class, get on the fucking shuttle bus and go to work for the NSA. And their asses are brought to work all day, and then they're brought home at night. Jail or ankle bracelet, house arrest. Pretty soon, Furlong was on the ground in Kabul, managing intelligence operations day to day. And uh, so then I get down to... um, I sat down with him in the spring of 2016 when the Republican presidential primaries were almost over and Furlong had thrown his support behind Donald Trump and was working with a group of retired generals and spies to help craft his foreign policy platform. Since then, he's been a ghost. No answers to emails, phone calls, or texts. To me, that means he's been in operational mode. An anonymous poster calling themselves QAnon began dropping crumbs on anime geek realm gamer boards called The Chans a year after I talked with Furlong. I've idly wondered since the start if he was involved or inspiration. The style, substance, and method of delivery for the psychological operation slash information operation known as QAnon, to me, matches Furlong's modus operandi. The timelines add add up, the ultimate product, inspiring and radicalizing a group of people to storm the Capitol in an attempt to install a different government, which the Q people called the storm, matches what the CIA military have accumulated much experience doing overseas. Perhaps people with experience, knowledge, and expertise in toppling governments in ways both overt and covert went rogue, stole the overseas playbook, and brought it back home for domestic operations. Or perhaps I've been reading too much Tom Clancy. <laughs> but I mean, I've wondered, man. Like, and and you know who Fur- like Furlong reported to Mike Flynn. Right. And they he's definitely a big um hero in that in that movement. He seems yeah. to be the yeah that, and it's interesting because yeah, QAnon is like a video game. It um, really is. Yeah. It's a it's a ARG, an right. augmented reality game. As that that dude, you follow that Jim Stewartson dude on the he's nuts. Uh, the guy out in California that's like, anyways, the uh, I I get too into all this shit. Weird personalities involved. You never know like who's working for who or why or what you know, and like hard for me to sort out i'm a disabled vet on a pension you know but like shit it's fascinating all right mr farwell thank you so much Um, thank you sir who where can people find you anything you want to plug including yourself obviously i'm going to include uh, a link to your Substack. uh yeah um, but my my Substack would be great and also my book is uh called american cypher bo bergdahl and the u.s tragedy in afghanistan and that's based on um work i did for years on the Bo Bergdahl case. I started off working with uh, Rolling Stones, Michael Hastings. We did the first uh, story on Bergdahl that came out in Rolling Stone. That got us investigated by the FBI. Um, And then I just carried it through and wound up writing a book for Penguin Press about it that came out in 2019. And I'm proud of it and you guys should read it. Um, It it explains a lot. And there's two chapters on Flynn and Furlong if you're interested in more of that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, sir.